0: In the face of an unpredictable future, we are all called upon each and every day to think of -of out-of-the-box ways to tackle challenges to our environment, well-being, or what kinds of yoghurt to bring with you on your next journey to space. Welcome to the Grand Challenges podcast, a show about inspiring individuals who are stepping up to these challenges and are here to share stories about their own personal journey towards making our world a better place. I'm your host, Peter Markusbach, an urban planner without a plan, but with a passion for connecting across expertise and providing you access to knowledge from the cutting edges of science, engineering, technology and design. My guest today is Arya Arab Shahi, an architect and territorial strategist at 51N4E, an architecture and urban strategy studio based in Belgium. Through his diverse portfolio of projects across Europe and Asia, Arya has been challenging conventional notions of territorial planning in search of more adaptive solutions for the future. Today on the show, we unpack the idea of city-making with an appreciation for cultural connections and continuity, as well as the persistence and care of nature in harsh urban environments. We also consider how a master plan may be better characterized as a palette of choices and where education in this rapidly evolving discipline should be heading. Detailed information is provided in the show notes over at peterambach.com/podcast. Thank you for joining and please enjoy the show. Lovely to have you here today, Aria.
1: Thank you very much, Welcome Peter. To the show. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And we are sitting in sunny Brussels. You've managed to get the few minutes of sun in the winter of Brussels. So we're all very lucky. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful day and uh, been visiting, and it's been a lot of fun seeing what you do and uh, learning a lot more about you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you and also to collaborate yes. alongside this trip. Definitely. And one particular moment that I thought was very inspiring and got me thinking a lot when we went out for lunch on the first day that I visited the office, was this corner shop. So for the listeners, we went out for Turkish Koftas, one of your restaurants of choice. And when we sat down outside this shop, we're waiting for our food, you pointed to a little red corner shop. There's sort of two roads, the narrow streets that come and intersect at this corner shop. And you asked me one very interesting question, which was, imagine you had a corner shop like this, what would you make out of it? And I answered something along the lines of having a sort of studio or a creative space at the back with a front-facing public space to engage people and when you gave me your answer I thought it was very interesting could you tell me a bit about that
1: Um, of course
0: I usually ask this question because it brings out a different dimension of
1: personality of the individuals I meet I've heard answers such as I would do a library here or a wine shop or a club where we also supply uh, (laughs) stationery but for me I have a passion for food and a passion for food culture, especially when it comes to the region where I'm from. I'm from Iran originally, and I am fascinated by the cultural continuity that exists from the Caucasus through Iran, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, the Uyghur community, in Northern China. And that continuity can be seen both in music, uh, dimensions of arts and food as well. So we can, for example, follow the trail of kebab throughout this region. But another ingredient of my choice is yogurt. I am in love with yogurt. We can have yogurt for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. We can have it during day, during the evening. We can mix it with sour things, with, with salty things, with sweet things. So I would love to present that cultural continuity also in form of a business on a street. In Brussels which is also a very diverse community it's almost like
0: an exhibition of food and you said a yogurt shop for all kinds of uses in the end definitely very healthy food to have in your diet I know it's also healthy for the gut flora and so I enjoy my share of yogurt as well so (laughs) I noticed you cook a lot as well and you work with many different spices so I think that that interest uh, comes to light in a lot of that but food is also a very important element that sort of shapes society or allows cultures to come together especially in the context of an urban landscape or city and this was something that really caught my attention when I first met you when we first started working together and when I saw a lot of the the work that you do a lot of it is centered around this idea of city making what do you define as city making it's a on one hand it's an easy question and also it's almost an impossible question
1: one of the surprising lessons I learned when I was learning more about cities is that the question came up, at what point do you call a community a city? When is it a village? When is it a city? You know, and that threshold, apparently there is no rule for it. A city is where the people call it a city. So it's a very subjective experience. And it could be a city of 10,000 people or a city of 10 million people. I think the practice of city-making today, especially as we are evolving as a society, is a practice that requires all disciplines and sectors to work together. I would call that collaboration around any part of the material life that we sustain around us can be part of city-making. I believe even the corner shop can play an important role in
0: city-making. So I wouldn't limit it by definition. It is as broad as it can be. With that comes the, the notion of not just the corner shop, but shaping the broader territory that we live in, because there's a certain, not just cultural identity, but also that function that comes in to creating the spaces that people need to live in and lead their day-to-day lives in. Absolutely. I think you're
1: mentioning the word planning here, and that is a word that is being used more and more. At the same time, again, the, the core of it is being questioned also more and more. I believe I have entered the sphere of planning in my work, starting rooted in architecture. That was my starting point, but my current practice is more about planning. But in the contemporary state of our politics, our society, our environment, what does planning mean? We are in an era of polarized politics, fragmented societies, and changing climate. So as every aspect of our lives are shifting rapidly in directions that cannot be predicted, what role can planning play? What does it mean to plan? Through experience, I've learned that the most successful planning exercises are the ones who resist planning. Interesting. If we can, in a project that we receive in a master plan, I think master plan is a big word, you know? It's as if you know everything, you're looking from the top down, you have the God point of view, and you're planning this future, which is gonna work at every detail. And it is never like that. It has never been, and it's even worse now. So the most successful master plans today are what we can call palettes, where we have choices. We can make choices, we can shift our paths. There is room to change. And here, the words such as framework could open a new path or other words like scenario planning rather than forecasting. I believe if we even look this up, the use of words that are less absolute and more open, such as palette, menu, framework, scenarios, these kind of words are increasing compared to the use of absolute terms, such as plans or forecasts. These definitions are limiting. They're more linear while we're living in cultures that are growing in all directions, that are moving in all directions.
0: Maybe also contracting and expanding in all directions. So we need to be prepared for that. I'm sensing that, again, the element of food or you know arts, which I know you're also quite interested in coming to light, that we need to take a more, well, less rigid approach and a more flexible approach to that, which is a very interesting point I think we'll get to. But you've already mentioned a few elements of your journey that we've had a chance to discuss in preparation for this episode. So it'll be interesting to see how you got here now to this mindset. So tell me a bit about how it all started, because you said you came from architecture and now you see yourself far more in the planning space. So territorial strategy, or you, what do you call yourself? At the
1: moment, I'm calling myself a territorial strategist, but I believe if you ask many of my peers who are not completely in the world of architecture, but they have studied architecture or other parallel disciplines, they find it difficult to call themselves a term or a role because the role is quite broad and changes by circumstance. I have this funny question sometimes, or it's, it's a question that I thought about once, What is it that I'm doing? And especially I was thinking about crises, moments of crises. Imagine we have to leave Earth. It is not livable anymore. And there is a spaceship. Everyone who enters, they ask them, so what can you do for us in the spaceship? And someone can say, I'm a doctor. I can diagnose patients. I can provide them with a cure. Someone else can say, I'm an engineer. I can fix the engine of the spaceship. And if they ask me, what can you do for us? The only answer I can give is, tell me what is your problem? Because my role shifts depending on what the problem is. And I think that is a state that we find ourselves as architects. At the moment, I'm calling myself territorial strategist because those are the type of
0: issues I'm facing today. So you grew up in Iran and you you experienced a lot of your childhood there and a lot of your education. I have some Iranian friends and they are really well educated. They learn the expertise to a great depth. and. You then moved out into the European space where you've been practicing on several projects, but you maintain a lot of your links back to Iran as well. And I'm sure we'll get into one of the projects through the course of this episode. But what was that journey like?
1: I have left Iran, but Iran has not left me. So that link I have tried to sustain through also fostering projects or collaborations that could arise with different opportunities. Since I left Iran, I've tried to engage in certain projects that, you know, give me also another reason to go other than, of course, uh, seeing my loved ones. Well, I grew up in Iran for the most of my life, from the moment I was less than one year old until I was 20 years old. And we have to remember that at this moment is not called Iran. It is called the Islamic Republic of Iran. And those words also drop a shadow over the life that occurs as you know education is highly political and you have to understand what education means under the islamic republic it is a campaign to cultivate a society that abides by certain rules with ideals that you would not imagine ideals that are informed by religious beliefs and following that culture of if i dare say mindwashing in education i remember aspiring to become a martyr when I was, for example, 13 years old, I believe. Because we had learned if you become a martyr in a war, you can get to the highest levels of heaven. It's like a shortcut. Uh, I don't think I expressed this explicitly, and I did not grow up in a religious family at all. My family also left the room open for me to interpret things. But I mention this because growing from that point onwards, you have to learn to swim against these waves that are informed by, for example, religious bias or other types of bias. There are systems in place that do not necessarily facilitate your prosperity. They're there for a different purpose. So from a very early age, I think I had to learn about shaking the systems at play to question them, especially. Later on, as I was graduating from high school and I was still a bit religious in one way or another, I had a math teacher. We were close and he kindly provided me with a book called The Blind Watchmaker, which is by Richard Dawkins. And he didn't even mention what this book is about. He just gave it to me. And as I respected him, I kind of opened the book that night. And if you know Richard Dawkins, he's probably one of the most famous atheists there are. I didn't know that at the time. And the first chapter of this book is not even about religion at all. It's about bats and how the bats see the world, which is through their ears. Through that chapter, you learn that man is not superior in all aspects. It brings down the superiority of man, and that is one of the foundations of our religious beliefs. So with that, then it, in the second chapter, it goes into another piece about algorithms that can start from very simple actions and end with very complex results. So that was the beginning of my journey towards atheism, which was breaking another system. To enter a university in Iran, you have to go through a very intense exam. You have to study for one year and you have four hours to respond to 300 questions and that determines which university and which major you can go to. You have to study hard for that. The system exists in other countries as well. But going through that procedure, entering university, again, there was another challenge. It was the first time I met architecture, but with a curriculum that in the beginning seemed okay, but as I was growing in that system, again, it felt I'm not growing enough. The curriculum lacked diversity. It did not encourage critical thinking. I don't think I even knew what critical thinking was back then, but I felt there is a big gap. So again, I did not finish my bachelor's and I left after a bit more than halfway in search of an education system where I can grow. In the way I believe I need to grow. So that was the moment that I decided to leave Iran and I came to London to Architectural Association, which is a one-of-a-kind school with a one-of-a-kind system. There they broke down the building blocks of my architectural education. And the unit system at the AA is is structured in tribes. In those tribes, you choose a mentor and they choose you as well. They provide a formwork, almost a theme of work, and there they give you a season, three months, to develop your own question within that formwork. So in this school, you learn more about how to ask the right questions more than how to answer them. And I think this has been a fundamental aspect when it also comes to my career today in planning. We always have to question the question. We always have to move beyond the given brief to understand what other aspects are at play that can
0: inform the result. Very interesting moments in your career today or in your life growing up where you had a chance to open your worldview. But what made you decide to go for architecture specifically? Was it because of the flexibility that the discipline offered? Because I guess engineering being, in a way, the technical parallel, is a bit more rigid in the formulas and equations we have. What was the reason for architecture?
1: The reason for architecture, I think, as with most architects, was not what architecture gives you as an education, because most people don't know what that is until they go through it. For me was, one, my fascination with geometries. I was in love with geometrical equations and thinking in shapes. Second was my interest in self-expression through drawing third was creative thinking i knew that i would be interested in a niche where math self-expression and creative thinking can come together and when i was choosing i was thinking of mathematics also next to architecture as, as a major to go through but yeah through some advice that my professors were giving me i to architecture, there is definitely less math that I was expecting, <laughs> but it's given me a completely different set of tools and skills that I did not
0: sign up for. But I'm happy that I have mm. them. And I think architects often have that more flexible, or uh, well, their ability to think more flexibly and to ask interesting questions. And as you mentioned before, you said the architecture academy in London allowed you to, or gave you that skill to ask these interesting questions, but not to necessarily answer them. That uh, that was an interesting counterpoint there. So, you mentioned the school of tribes. Is this different schools of thoughts? Because I know that in architecture, and as well as many other disciplines, there's usually different schools of thoughts around how we perceive a problem, how we we question a problem. Absolutely.
1: It is these different schools of thoughts. And it is rare in an education system to get that diversity. At the AAU, you will have professors coming from very different backgrounds, very different continents. And they are given an open table, a white canvas to draw their brief on. Their take on architecture can be anything. That can result in sometimes not a very good unit or not a very good tribe, meaning that you would not learn the skills that you hope for. But it's also an experiment. It's a learning curve, both for the studio teacher and the student. They go through this journey together. And I was lucky enough to be in two of these units where in one, I learned how to perform a presentation. We had to learn a lot of presentation skills in drawing, in sequencing a specific narrative, and also acknowledging the aspect of time in architectural projects. I think one of the units I was in taught by Inigo Minns and Masten had this interesting way of blending time within architecture. And we always had to produce these drawings that were called scores, as they put it in we had to draw in time interesting which is a very difficult thing to do but you learn also from your peers for one year how can we draw with time how can we also blend in aspects of community, legacy, materiality, and time and space. So bringing these together in one drawing, it's not always successful, but I think it gave me a medium to work with later in my career to always be open to present differently, to not be confined by the conventional modes of representation, which is, let's say, a plan or a section. These are just mediums of communication. These are not God sent Bibles. So it helped me to question the format. In the other unit, which was my last year at that school, I was lucky to have Peter Swinnen as my mentor, who used to be the State Architect of Flanders. And he was inspiring to me because he believed in design as a tool to inspire policymaking. He said, I have three metrics to evaluate your projects and ideas. Urgency, relevance, impact. How relevant is this topic that you're proposing? Is it urgent to respond to it now? And what would be the impact of it? And those three metrics have stayed with me. Throughout that year, we experimented a lot with how to use design as a tool to inspire, but not as a tool to build on, you know, to,
0: to build buildings from. Seems counterintuitive. Like, <laughs> I always would have thought design is, well, planning is sort of the stage before that design where you have the ideas to inspire and design is where you then come up with the more concrete solution for interesting. things. Uh, so if you look
1: at the design stages, there is this stage called strategic design, which can even have an overlap with brief design. What is the brief? What is the question? And it can be immediately followed with what is going to be our strategy. And then we move on to concept design, then sketch design, then, you know, construction, uh, documents and so on. So. I think the design that you're referring to is more the concept and sketch design, but there's a phase before that called strategic design. Yeah, that is
0: exactly what I was thinking of concept where it's slightly broad and then the more detailed design where you start to put the dimensions to the elements of your outcome. And I think I prefer that to planning
1: because when you're designing strategies, you're designing avenues towards the future. you are thinking of the complexities at play, the obstacles, the incentives, and you're seeing the whole table in one frame while planning is already putting the milestones in and deciding how you will go forward. I think there is a key difference there to me. Of course, we can use the word strategic planning, but strategy is important in this aspect, that it, again, leaves the room open and tries to present opportunities, You choose
0: from them. I think I'm going to be going back to my room later and rethinking my whole philosophy around these terminologies because <laughs> it's it's a very interesting way of looking at it and actually makes total sense because what is really the difference between the words planning and design if we're looking at the city context designing urban life as well yeah i think we have to understand that of course
1: these words have a literal meaning but also their definition evolves with the definitions that everyone attaches to them so i think planning has become heavy with certain connotations And that is why maybe I'm preferring to not use it. But of course, from a literal standpoint, you can also interpret it in the same way that I'm talking about strategic design. I think we talked about design as a tool to inspire policymaking. And it's important to mention that beyond the strategic design, which is asking the right questions, we also had to bring forward modes of presenting the legacy of that design without designing the actual artifact. So it is almost the same as telling a story. You know, design as a tool to inspire policymaking is when you have detected or diagnosed a very clear question, a challenge for the city or for whatever environment you're in. You have looked at the causes and consequences and you come up with a proposal in form of a story. So it shouldn't be understood literally the design that you're proposing. It's a story that could work. And that story then can inspire action. And I think that understanding of design is what has driven me towards where I'm operating today in territorial strategy. I believe I'm telling stories
0: for the territory, at times scientific and at times artistic. And so a huge influence coming back to, I guess, where you left off, Peter Swinnen. I believe he's also one of the co-founders of the studio that you're now based in, 51N4E. And he, in a way, drilled into you this idea of urgency, relevance, impact. And coming from the policymaking, I guess it also opened up your mind beyond the architectural discipline to looking much broader across the different other disciplines that are involved in city making.
1: That resonates very well with what went on because he was for me the person who opened up the world of architecture towards the world of policymaking and city making, which is a much more diverse and plural world. I tried to get a taste of that after this period of education and I went to a department in Arab, the engineering company called Foresight Research and Innovation. I worked there for nine months and there I learned a lot about how our vocabulary in architecture schools and practice are confined to that society of architects. And I learned the shared vocabulary that is being used among the different practices in city making, which were present in Arab. We had workshops between water engineers and material scientists. We had to talk with business leaders to see what their view is on future workplaces. And next to this we were also using foresight methodologies, which were about, I would say, resisting planning, you know, and opening these paths up which again informed this idea of
0: strategic design. Foresight methodologies. So in a way learning to sort of predict the future or at least anticipate what may happen in the future and acknowledging change as a constant okay do you have some examples of methodologies that you learned or exposed yourself to i would say
1: there are some uh, familiar methodologies such as backcasting different ways of scenario planning and i think maybe one that is more used these days is the morphological box method where you identify the key variables and you try to map all the variations they can have in form of a table. And there you can start to plan your scenarios through these variations that you see across the table. That helps you to put down a very complex setting in all its shapes that it can take in one frame and see what kind of futures could be foreseen. And then you see these multiple futures. I think this is the role of foresight to give you the multiple futures you can have and provide you with other tools to move from your starting point, your key questions, challenges, towards which one of those futures you think you should be prepared for. Which
0: I think is refreshing because at least in my domain, we often try to predict something and sort of look at the uncertainties around that prediction. I certainly ventured out into the more exploratory futures pathways, where I say, okay, there's no one future, but there's a number of different pathways you can take. And I know that some colleagues in the Netherlands have also been researching on this topic, and they've been publishing for quite some time as well. So... Certainly agree with that kind of philosophy where we have to be able to look at what is possible and not just fix our sights on one particular outcome. Backcasting for me is something I've been exposed to, I guess just to clarify for the listeners as well, it's where you look at one or a few desired states in the future that you're happy with and you try to figure out how to get there by going backwards in the timeline to the present day.
1: And there's also another way to think about backcasting. I think we can learn a lot from what has already happened. There are moments in research that I would say we sometimes face in city making where we look back 100 years and we see a moment where a designer, an architect, a policymaker took a risk and the risk that they took started to create an alternative to something that was seen as a fact in city making. And for one reason or another, the lifetime of that experiment ended early. Hmm. Those experiments from the past sometimes are even more enlightening than when we're thinking about the future today, because they bring us an evidence that has not been used so far, and that can become a key reference for an experiment that we're playing today. I think for me, an example of that is the 1933 Chicago Expo. You know, the international expos were a different creature back then and it was a space for nations in the beginning to show other nations what their latest achievements have been and in chicago 1933 it was a moment where america and other nations were suffering from a decade of economic stagnation and they did not have the funding
0: to make this expo happen coming out of the great depression of 1929 exactly just before the second world war which they didn't know at the time precisely so It is a key
1: moment here in even the practice of city making, I believe, where the Chicago Commercial Club decides that they would finance this expo. So it's the private sector entering the sphere that public sector used to be to sustain this expo and showcase for the first time production lines of different American products, such as the American can company, General Motors, because... I always like this story (laughs) because the population did not trust supermarket products. You know, they used to buy lentils from a grocery shop from the farmer who picked up those lentils. But then you have the American can company canning these products in the factory and they just saw this metal shape that has lentils in it and they didn't trust this, you know, what is in this? How did it come in here, you know? Unfamiliarity. Exactly. So in that expo of Chicago, 1933, You had the whole production line and as a visitor, you could press the button, you could see the metal sheet going into the machine, the material going in the machine and you get out a can with the logo of the expo that you can take home and talk to your family about. The General Motors company brought a car manufacturing production facility into the expo so you can see how the cars are made. These are monstrous pavilions in size. And the images that we have from this expo are, to me, one of the most fascinating images I've ever seen. So this changed the relationship between producers or industrial producers and citizens. It was so successful that they did it a second time in 1934. And some of the events that happened there to be able to finance the leisure destinations in that expo for me have been an experiment to learn from. There is a famous architecture company called Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, SOM. Today they build high rises and they make master plans all around the world, but they were more interesting in the second half of the 20th century. And the Chicago 1933 Expo is one of the early moments that the collaboration was forging between Skidmore and Owings. And one of the interesting things that Owings does here is that they needed to build a elevator Um, I don't know what to call this device. Imagine two (laughs) elevators across the expo and a cabin car that moves you from one side to another. So you go up with an elevator, then you have this cabin that moves you across the other side, and then you have another elevator that brings you down. Uh, Almost like a sky bridge. I can visualize that. I think we have to find a photo and put that in the show notes. For sure. And they didn't have the funding for it. So what Owings does is that he lobbies with Otis Elevator, which at the time was uh, in its early years, the steel company, I think, of Chicago and also, I think a cable manufacturer, I don't remember, there were three suppliers. And they accept to become shareholders in this leisure structure. And this is not usually the role of an architect, Hmm. but it was interesting that this architect made an impossible design project, also an ambitious one, in an era of economic stagnation possible by lobbying with suppliers and making them shareholders. I think this type of model, which are forced to take risk in an era of economic constraint, has been an inspiration to me. What role can we take as architects? How can we facilitate different modes of collaboration and not wait for an open call to apply to, a competition, or a client to knock on our door? How can we facilitate the transition
0: ourselves by being proactive? And you mentioned the key word that I was going to also mention, which is transition. Because in this period, exactly as you described it, the populace was facing very new ideas. And it was a matter of also getting used to what we now take for granted nowadays. You go into a store, for example, and you buy your canned lentils. Some will prefer to still buy them fresh, but for many, it's a convenience now. But previously, it was something that was completely alien to them. You yourself have also ventured into this kind of space in some of the territorial projects you worked on, trying to tackle complexity but then also keeping this, this notion of transition. How do we now get people to embrace this? Or how do we inspire action in something that's unheard of or some, something that's very new? There are two projects that we spoke about that I think sort of characterize these elements. One of them being the Seamind master plan, which brings back this palette keyword you were talking about. And the other one is a more recent one you finished as well, Luxembourg in Transition. And we're actually working on a continuation of that kind of storyline. Maybe let's go a bit into those those kinds of projects to see how this applies in the city making sense. Absolutely, for sure. And talking about transitions,
1: I moved from London to Belgium, uh, partly because I wanted to grow. And I felt the comfort that I have in London doesn't allow me to grow as much. And because I had learned about the more open culture of architecture and planning in Belgium and the more public sector that has more budget for public projects, which was my interest at the time and still is. So that was about six years ago and for the past three years, maybe even a bit more, I've been involved in projects that are trying to see what the role of planning could be in our transition towards carbon neutral society. Within this question, what is at stake is the environmental realities and factors at play in parallel to the economic drivers and also realities at play, which are at conflict in most cases. And I would say that most of the energy of our policymakers, our city makers in all disciplines is to create balances between these two factors, so that they can work together or alongside each other. But there are inherent contradictions. When we think about growth and limits to resources and resource extraction, they just don't go hand in hand. So we are trying to take small steps. And thankfully, the Minister of Energy and Spatial Planning of Luxembourg, he had this vision that he could be more ambitious in what his mandate can provide him towards a just transition. And he created a brief together with Panos Manziaris, about Luxembourg in transition. That was the title. And the idea was, how can we develop quantified pathways for decarbonization of Luxembourg through spatial planning? I would say the key word here for us was quantified. This is not something that we're used to in our discipline because there are a lot of factors at play that cannot be quantified, especially demographic factors and preferences. You know, there is not enough data, and we're also not used to using them. This field is shifting. So even in the past three years, four years that I have been more involved in the field of quantified spatial planning, if you would like to call it, using data sets and using different modes of analysis has been a rapidly evolving aspect of our work. It was through that project that we... Learned a lot about what role we can play in decarbonization And it was a very interesting brief. There were 10 teams, 10 consortiums, multidisciplinary consortiums, somehow competing with each other in three phases. And after each phase, the competition would shrink to six teams, then four teams. And we had to develop our metrics. And after we had to develop the territorial strategy for the country and the functional region, which is the areas around the country of Luxembourg, which have a lot of flow, economic and else. And then we had to develop the pilot projects. In relation to those territorial strategies it was a fascinating experience that i had together with my good collaborators in lola the landscape office philip nathan from 2001 in luxembourg and other collaborators and that alliance has uh, remained intact in other trajectories that we have tackled together in the combat towards a carbon neutral reality in lyon and also continuing still in luxembourg maybe in netherlands and brussels soon the project that we tried to portray together, the question that we tried to ask was, what can we do in spatial planning that can be quantified towards decarbonization? And we landed on the notion of soil. That was a key common ground.
0: It's also a very hot topic at the moment, whether it's in decarbonization or even biodiversity or agriculture. So it's Absolutely. Really very relevant there. Yeah. And next to that, we were also looking at the topic of people. So that was the
1: hunch soil and people. That remained the title of the project and when we learned more about the scenarios that the eu had already devised we tried to portray our proposal as part of the scenario called one and a half life 1.5 life by the eu commission in a report called a clean planet for all and there that scenario tries to show the leverage of nature-based solutions and lifestyle preferences so that became our focus around the topic of soil which was our lens and We identified four key themes to look into. One was the topic of diet change and excessive food consumption habits. The other was on the production side of food. So agricultural practices, intensive agricultural practices. What would that mean then for forestry? How much forests do we have left? And another factor, which is more about the cities, is growth, land take, and the pressures from the city over these natural resources. So these four topics were what we were looking at. And there we had to develop new vocabularies. We were entering a space that we had not seen before ourselves in our experiences. We developed uh, land use change pathways that were informed with proposed diet shifts. We even had our behavioral change expert, Gregor Waltersdorfer map for us. A proposed diet shift that was a bit bold because diet shifts are a very political topic and the authorities do not dare to propose bold diet shifts, there's always mild diet shifts in these scenarios, but we propose the bold diet shift, which moves away from an omnivorous diet towards a plant-based diet or plant-based equivalent gradually, very slowly, and what would that mean for the space that food is consuming? Because An omnivorous diet requires seven times the land for food production compared to a plant-based diet. Oh, wow. That is a huge number. So
0: the land for the livestock or the meat, whether it's produced, the land for the grains. The the food and feed. The food and feed, that's a nice way of putting it. Exactly, so that shift in land consumption
1: for food production can give way to afforestation, reforestation, and renaturalization of valleys. It can completely shift the way our landscape is operating. And also, in response to growth of our cities, we understood that the user preferences for having a garden or having a certain amount of square meters to feel comfortable. This is also another key driver in that And we try to think about alternatives. I think the interesting point to focus on is that new vocabulary, that new way of talking about space mediums to communicate design. And this goes back to the tribes I was talking about, how can you implement time, community, legacy, into one drawing. How can you think about design as a tool to inspire policymaking? And this was exactly that. We, at a certain slide, we had a shift in land use, which was informed by quantified methodology using diet shift and population shift, as I was saying. And you could see in parallel, the land use change from 2022 to 2030, 40, and 2050. And you could see the under layer of that land use, which is the capacity or how much the soil does have the capacity to sequester carbon with this change in land use. To put it very simply, a forest can sequester more than a pasture. Mm -hmm. So if we have silvopastures, which includes or introduces trees over those pastures in certain distances from each other, it can enhance the sequestration capacity of that pasture with other added values, introducing biodiversity corridors, helps water retention, it even can produce fruit. So it was these type of shifts that we were discussing, combining diet shift agricultural practices introducing afforestation and reforestation in multiple ways, discussing agroforestry, silvopastures, and also proposing a different kind of density planning in the cities of Luxembourg, all in combination with each other and quantifying the result in tons of CO2 equivalent. We had another sheet, for example, where you saw... It's a 3D bird eye view where you could see the land that was saved from land take, what kind of agricultural practice or forestry practice was introduced there, what was the exact impact of that intervention in a timeline. This type of outlook on city making, this type of graphic communication medium, which is combining aspects of soil, aspects of density, aspects of landscape practices, is not there. I think today in our discipline, Everyone is experimenting with that. And for me, that has been a turning point in how I see planning and how I see our role in response to this urgency and how we can have an impact on this transition. So I go back to the three metrics of relevance, urgency and impact. Yeah. It looks like we transition. Fortunately, our proposals were received very well. And we now have
0: follow-up commissions to, to develop further from that departure point. And so you described in a way, really a palette of different aspects that are anticipatory, that are adaptable, can lead to adaptable policymaking as well. You look at what the future may hold, but you look at different ways to to understand that future. And in a way, this palette, idea also comes back to one of the other projects, which is, I think, where you first pioneered this notion of a palette rather than a plan, which is in the sea mine project. And that's
1: a very good point. I have to bring one notion again from Luxembourg in transition, and that was the land use change methodology that we developed. How can you think of a future proof land use plan in response to the question of carbon neutrality was designed as a, let's call it an algorithm. That you can change its inputs and its trajectories what kind of diet shift do you imagine for your society what kind of population shift are you having at this moment what kind of shifts in agricultural practices are you thinking to have and how many square meters or hectares of land different land uses do you have today so these are the variables one of the positive aspects of this approach was that it allowed the policymakers the authorities of cities of countries of neighborhoods to tests their own paths within this process. We showed one possible path, but they could also test other paths. And our strategies that we propose, we called them a menu of strategies. A menu. It's a menu. Well, I guess it relates well to food. So exactly. So this uh, maybe owes part of its DNA to experience I had before at C mine. So C mine used to be a coal mine, a very active coal mine in East of Belgium in the city of Genk. And it was decommissioned and many of the production facilities were removed. Some of the key buildings were preserved. Fifty one and forty won the competition to revitalize that heritage piece into a cultural center, which is quite successful today. And end of two thousand eighteen, beginning of nineteen, there was a competition for designing both the master plan for the land that was next to those heritage sites and the design for a cultural campus within that master plan it's it's a very rare occasion to have to design both a building and a master plan that the building is going to be situated in we upon observing the site and this was a collaboration between 51m4e and point supreme a greek office which was a beautiful collaboration one of the things that we observed there was the previous master plan which went through the traditional way of planning that means Functional zoning, parceling, selling the land to, or agreeing with a developer to develop that land and then selling the property. So at the end, you develop public land with a planner functional zoning, which is, I would say, monofunctional in pieces, usually. Not very
0: efficient either, if it's just monofunctional.
1: No, there are zoning categories, depending on the context you're in, there are zoning categories that leave the room open for multifunctional development. Mm -hmm. In that specific zone, it wasn't a multifunctional zoning. and and sale, so they made it into private property at the end, which would, in a way, block access. It would completely shift the identity of the site. And it was also designed for a specific kind of lifestyle where you have a two-story house, you have a garage, there are wide roads, you can take your car everywhere, but the landscape had a quality that could not be ignored because these coal mines were fed with forests, so the wood from forests, and the rubble out of the mine would end up in what becomes a hill at the end, what they call terril. So imagine you have a hill with a very specific type of biodiversity, which is close to ruderal species and pioneer species, which are in a way growing in impossible conditions there to facilitate a transition towards a more flourishing nature. You have the forest. We yeah, had this vast landscape next to it with also other types of pioneer species. And what we wanted to do was to put a stop at this mode of conventional planning, which is parceling and sale and private property and car-oriented lifestyles. We said, okay, let's go the opposite way. We put the campus, the cultural campus on the intersection of two roads okay. to block the car access. We talked about the pedestrianized zone or pedestrian first zone later on. And in the master plan, we tried to resist planning. We said, let's not plan for something that we don't know if it will come or not. Let's not plan, for example, for a cultural campus on that side if we don't have already a demand for it. We have no possible way of understanding this could happen or not. So how can we resist planning? How can we also resist private ownership? Can we come up with a type of zoning that is not functional? How can you then zone, how can you manage, how can you govern this piece of land, public land, which we see as highly valuable, generous, and
0: with full of potentials. So breaking the structure of conventional hierarchy, systematicness in planning, I find that quite funny and also scary at the same time. Very scary. Really trying to make it non-rigid.
1: Very scary. So the city already had a demand for a certain number of housing. And uh, what we tried to do in the proposal was to concentrate that demand for housing on to the edges of our site to create more dense living environments, leaving the majority of the landscape open. In that way, we could justify a business model for the city because they also looked at an economic return and try to preserve the various qualities that this public land had. So for the challenging zoning part, we ended up developing something called, or we called, the soft grid. The idea of the soft grid was... Do not parcel, do not functionally zone, define possibilities in layers. So we wanted to provide a condition for spatial interventions that could last one day, one week, one season, one year, 10 years. So how can we embrace temporality? The palette of choice. Exactly. How can we embrace the idea of incubation rather than zoning and sale? Let's not have this indefinite contracts, but have temporary contracts and see if this intervention is living up to its ambitions. And if not, let's rethink it. Let's have that room for shifts later on. So we talked about these incubation zones within that soft grid. There were certain parcels that we defined called the incubation sites. Mm -hmm. So we developed these incubation sites where different parties, if interested, could form alliances and develop a more permanent project. On the areas outside those incubation sites, the less permanent structures, more temporal structures could take shape. And this was a very high risk for the city to take. We tried to show them what happens if we don't do this. What happens if we plan like before. And we, we had these model making workshops in the meetings where we could produce uh, spontaneous models you know as the conversation was going forward we show okay if we want to do this this is how it would look like this is how the land will be taken this would be the quality that you will lose and let's not lose this potential and opportunity and we were very fortunate that the city aldermen of Gink were ambitious enough we were very fortunate that on the other side of the table as one of our clients we had People like Luis Osieka, who is now the director of Mine, really pushed for this ambitious approach. And we called for a charter of values as a way to govern rather than following zoning. So we showed the possibilities, these layers, the layers of landscape following permaculture values, the layers of temporal structures outside the incubation sites. The layer of incubation sites, and the idea was to govern the site as a festival, almost as a festival. Yes, we ins- we were inspired uh, okay. by festivals as a mode of uh, governance uh, yeah. of land, but to also set some benchmarks of what are the values to aspire to what do we want here, what we are not looking for in this soft grid we talked about a charter of values where each new member in the soft grid would read this sign this and it's almost a form of contract a bit more abstract than a sale contract but around values rather than around square meters and this would allow for a much more fluid dynamic between the different pieces and different members that are playing in this side but also
0: embed a form of philosophy and thinking to bridge collaboration between the people who are going to be on the site. Absolutely. And this needs work. So I think the difficulty is they asked for a master plan of us.
1: We did not deliver a master plan. What we delivered was part master plan, part palette. The software was a palette. It was the beginning of a new mode of thinking about governing a public site. And it has been developing since it is still ongoing. It is 2023 and the soft grid is still alive. There have been some temporal interventions. The building project is moving forward, not on the intersection, but kind of on an intersection. And the charter is in progress. It is being developed slowly. I mean, these are very small steps at a time. But we look forward to fostering a platform for planning, design and governance in one of the most surprising areas in Genk and see what can come out of it we are i would say this is a pioneering project that i cannot compare to other projects that i've seen around so this idea of keeping the room open for governance acknowledging change embracing change within the planning
0: process is something that also stayed with us in luxembourg in transition and i guess it's still uncharted territory Unwell intended, but the idea of this charter is a very interesting way of at least bringing people to the same mode of thinking and so that you do that early on in the process so that you know everyone has a shared vision going forward.
1: Absolutely. That is exactly the rule of the charter. That
0: is lovely to hear. And it's also really that foray into understanding how we can design for humans, but also the environment at the same time and how to balance between them. And you mentioned at the start of the show that you left Iran, but Iran hasn't left you. And in a way, this experience on C mine came before a particular project that I think you really are very fond of and has also been a very interesting experience in working with these kinds of ruderal species. It's a project that you developed together with your friend and collaborator Luva Di Marco, and you called it Ruderal Acts. Thank you for bringing that up. As you say, it's a Project that is close to
1: my heart. And as we talked about it the other day, I realized how much it has left a footprint on the initiatives that I did later on because it went to the essential question of what is the relationship of us as humans towards nature today. This topic is now, I would say, a global topic. We are all thinking about it. We cannot think about our cities without thinking about our landscapes. We understand, we have to understand. There is no other way. We have to understand the deep interdependencies that exist between the cities that we live in and the natural resources that these cities are dependent on. This could be a green belt, this could be a garden at the back of our house, this could be a whole country and its food footprint. It all comes back to the same question. Rural Acts started with one of my frequent travels to Tehran. And Tehran is planned a bit like Los Angeles. It's a network of highways connecting different neighborhoods. And it was designed as a supposedly as a garden city by Victor Grun and Farman Farmayan in the early 70s. That was the last master plan before the revolution of 79. But is Tehran a garden city? That's the question. I believe the municipality tries to keep the gimmick of a garden city while the valuable pieces of green space and natural landscapes are diminishing and are being sacrificed for economic returns and commercial developments. The municipality of Tehran tries to, through the highways, which are the main arteries that you experience the scale of the city, on the margins of these highways, there are inaccessible green spaces and there are a lot of them that by itself is not an issue because it also can contribute to, for example, biodiversity corridors. Mm-hmm. We know that along infrastructure lines are quite interesting opportunities to contribute to biodiversity corridors. But what caught my attention and shocked me was the narrow spectrum of care intensive species that were planted, such as grass, such as roses, in a context that is suffering from water bankruptcy. So it got me thinking, how? in a country with such a diverse series of microclimates, with a wealth of stress-tolerant species along the margins of the desert and the wide spectrum of conditions that we have, which results in having a very diverse family of species in general, how is it that in this context, the municipality is choosing five species that are care-intensive to plant along the highways and as you're driving, you see these water sprinklers just rotating and rotating and water is pouring out. And then you have a news headline, water bankruptcy oh, know, drought. So that combination, that contradiction was impossible to my eyes. And I was lucky enough through a conversation with my cousin, Saba. She introduced me to her friend, Nafise Samadi, who is a botanist and at the time worked also in one of the herbariums of Tehran University. And in that herbarium, interestingly enough, they investigate uh, C4 and halophyte species in Iran. And C4 species are species that have a more efficient photosynthesis, to my understanding. I'm not a botanist, but I mm-hmm. try to understand the topic. And for me, that was mind blowing. I felt I have landed on the exact spot that I needed to land. And we conversed, we talked, we shared some insights together. Fortunately enough, around the same time, there was an open call for a residency by uh, Bozar and Gotha Institute in collaboration with the Ministry of Culture in Iran, and it was about industrial heritage sites. And the call was very open. What would you suggest to research or investigate? Because I had this interest in industrial heritage sites and heritage sites at large before, I had the hunch that one of the ways to think about heritage sites, industrial heritage sites, are through their vast open spaces. Of course, these are designed as campuses. There are many beautiful large-scale buildings that could be a topic of research in their own right. But one aspect that is usually left neglected is the vast exterior spaces. And industrial sites are very difficult conditions for nature to overcome. So this brings us to this question, the relationship between man and nature and the idea of the walled garden and paradise, you know. Paradise is literally a word for walled garden, which is the historic notion of making gardens. And it frames the garden as a walled area where man takes care and maintains nature in the way he appreciates it most. So I would say it's a one way relationship. Here we thought, especially considering the contemporary urgencies that we're facing, it's an opportunity to question that relationship and think about gardening beyond the wall. So that is where the Gardening Beyond the wall subtitle comes from. And Ruderol literally means growing from rubble. And it is referred to species that can grow in these impossible conditions. So imagine a cement factory in south of Tehran, which of course has this highly alkaline nature, being abandoned for 30 years, closed doors, no human care. And you open the doors and what do you see? I didn't know what you see, but I was hoping that we would see, we would see nature taking
0: over. Actually, you get a lot of these artistic renderings of post-apocalyptic worlds. Ruins. Yeah. You know, exactly. ruins. Yeah. Yeah. Or even in extreme droughts, you have certain species that are very drought tolerant. I guess that would also belong to this kind of, well, mm-hmm. ruderal is more anthropogenic or anthropocentric. But you you have a lot of species that can really resist these harsh and inhospitable environments. And it's fascinating when you see these, these artworks as well.
1: There is truth to that artworks. If we as humans leave Earth today, nature has no problem. I mean, it will survive for sure. It will flourish. It's going to be a much better planet for nature if we leave. But I don't think as a society, we are aware that nature is everywhere and we don't need to necessarily take care of it. We have an idea of what is a garden and I think that has been something that i have had many conversations with with my family with policymakers, especially in iran of their idea of gardening that question of roses and grass and the water sprinklers really touches on that topic why not have wild wheat a type of wheat that is of course it might not look as beautiful as you might want it to but it is beautiful let's just change the way we look at it so that was the idea of the project let's go into these exterior spaces let's see what evidence we can find. We didn't know what we're going to find then. We couldn't even access the site. There were multiple complexities because of the pandemic, because of political issues globally and also on the site itself. So what we did was I asked a friend in the municipality to go and visit the site for me in, their, in one of the visits. And I said, can you send me a few pictures of the species you see there growing? And she sent me a few pictures with a sad emoji saying that these are the only things I can find. And I could see literally trees yeah. that have grown there. It wasn't a garden, but it was nature becoming very active in an impossible site. To her, this was nothing. To me, this was everything. Uh-huh. I think we picked up on that. The next step we took was we sent photographers to photographers to document these species for us and show that tension between man and nature, between this symbol of industry and man overcoming nature and the cultures of extraction, being met with 30 years of abandonment and no care and then nature taking over using the most accidental moments such as a leakage, a shade by a brick wall as the perfect opportunity to grow. So they took that evidence, we took it to Nafise, the botanist, she identified those species and she said, actually, we'd have no catalogue of ruderal species in Tehran at all. Oh, wow. Opportunity. Opportunity, exactly. So we enjoyed a lot, the evidence that we received. And we said, okay, let's, as a next step, because we cannot, again, work in the factory, we were supposed to work in the factory before, but they couldn't get us a permit. We said, let's take the factory outside factory and spread it across the city we created these posters with the graphic designer michelle azopi and these posters used some of those key shots from the factory with very short captions that were framed with two words words that could be seen in contradiction with each other which was touching on this interpretations that different populations can have on this is it a garden or is it not is it fertile mm. is it barren is it welcome or is it unwelcome And these words were overlaid with these images and we pasted them across one of the the most symbolic streets in Tehran that goes from north to south. And that in itself was a whole other guerrilla project that we organized with another cousin of mine and the printing company and the photographer to document how people react to them. To just briefly mention this, we had to get a permit to put up these posters on walls, but we didn't have time because the timeline of the project was always crunching. So we had... Literally one day to get the permit. And that was impossible. So, okay, let's not get the permit and see what we can do. But we knew that with very high likelihood, these posters will be brought down in a matter of hours. So we sent one crew to put the posters up and another crew to document it with a half an hour delay. And to see what kind of interactions can we capture. And these are beautiful. These are visible also on the Ruderal acts Instagram profile. And we were surprised by the reactions that we received. Okay. It intrigued, intrigued the attention of passerbys. And we had also put a link there, a QR code, for asking if anyone is interested to be part of the third phase of this project. And with the around 20 volunteers that we received applications from, we organized a third act. So this is the third act of Roll Acts. The first was the atlas yep. of the factory. The second was the campaign in yep. the streets. And the third was the act of care by these contemporary gardeners We understood the contemporary gardeners as members of our society who are willing to refresh their minds about their idea of a garden. The city as a garden rather than a garden city. You know, that was the idea. So can you go outside your house, look around, and find the species that are growing in these impossible conditions they are all around you. You just don't see them or don't appreciate them as part of your garden. And we didn't say, what is the act of care? We just said, please perform an act of care documented for us and send it back to us so we had this amazing collection of acts of care and a new atlas in a way mm-hmm. from their side yeah. which was then also identified by our botanists so contributing to that ruderal atlas that tehran does not have they ranged from watering what with with drops because some of them were tiny microscopic i would say even species and some other were caressing the leaves others were pulling them up from the difficult spatial constraints they were facing and uh, helping them to get more sunlight. So these acts of conditioning and care without dominance were the chapter that we wanted to open up and explore further. To me, that project has left a mark on my mind, and I hope to somehow bring some of the methodologies that we tested there. Especially this idea that because we didn't have access to the site, Mm -hmm. we had to work with In alliance with the people that we knew from different disciplines, including photographers, botanists, and so on, to be our eyes, our ears, our legs, and hands, it
0: truly brought richness to both the subject matter and to the output. Lovely to hear. Well, it's a really inspiring story that can be told in three acts, which kind of works. A lot of good things come in threes. And so uh, you have an Instagram profile for this project. And this is something we can then put in the show notes so listeners can have a look and get a bit of a more visual feeling for what the project was about. Absolutely, But yes. a, a lovely story to share. Thank you. And so you're standing at the entrance to the spaceship. Okay. And you told me just now you wouldn't know what to, what to tell the person. You, you would say, what is the problem? And do you think there's something you can add to that now that you've reflected on your experience? I believe so a bit more today than before.
1: And I think, I don't know where in that spaceship they would need something like this, but going back to that idea of design as a tool to inspire and storytelling, I think I can be one of the storytellers of the spaceship. In addition to that, I can be someone who can listen to innovators and people who are thinking about ambitious ideas, radical ideas, and I can connect the dots between them and and create narratives That can inspire. So rather than putting myself as the creator herself, I'd rather be on the receiving end of these ideas and be the one who can pull a common thread through them, Mm. it is through experience. Now that I have realized I find comfort in complexity. I find the most comfort in situations where we are facing a complex social or spatial dynamic. And I
0: really enjoy the challenge to find common ground in the middle of contradictions. Very nice answer. So you mentioned Peter Swinon, who's had a very big impact on your life and some of the projects. But are there any other key moments, books, or seminars or events that you went to that completely changed the course of your career or even mindset? I believe the most prominent
1: life-changing courses or life-changing factors in my life have been events, certain periods. And usually they occurred on the points that I tried to shift away from a beaten path, such as when I left Iran before I finished my education, I had to go through a lot of turbulences and challenging times, but it was also a moment full of aspiration and hope and overcoming the obstacles to achieve or move towards those aspirations have taught me a lot. So that was one, then moving from London to Brussels, those events of moving away from my comfort zone, trying to seek another condition where I think I can grow better or be closer to my aspired destination. Those have been the most inspiring, life-changing
0: events and moments in my life. And forcing you to grow, whether you like it or not. It yes. always comes with bitters. And then you embraced it with the aspirations of moving ahead and
1: Absolutely. I always say in any immigration, you need very strong push factors and very strong pull factors. If you don't know your push and pull factors, you will not have a successful immigration. Yeah,
0: I've had a few of those myself. And yeah, the first stages are always quite challenging. But after that, you really embrace it. And the key is, I guess, to embrace that change. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what was one of the most challenging situations you've ever faced? Did it occur in those periods? Or was it something else that was even more challenging? And how did you overcome it? I
1: think I used this opportunity to Talk about the moment that I was in charge of a construction site for a building that I had partly designed in Iran. And while the pandemic was at full play, and while we were facing unpredictable inflation and changes in prices, with a very tight timeline I had to. I was there only for two months, every six months. And I had a very long to-do list back-to-back works had to happen and it's a chain of events in the construction side that you cannot just take one piece out so i think the experience that if i want a supplier to give me a certain product i would call them they say the prices are going up the market is frozen we cannot sell and then the prices come down a bit i call them again and say can i buy this supply now and they say the prices are coming down we cannot sell (laughs) so but working in these environments they completely lack stability so it's unstable on an hourly basis Prices are changing minute to minute and you just don't get what you want. And this is a very material example, but I think having those experiences also have taught me a lot about how to deal, for example, with a changing climate in our projects, you know, to to just accept that instability, accept that change, even on a minute to minute basis. So I think those challenges, and
0: that was one of the challenging moments, have proved to be a very powerful lesson as well. And you said you embrace complexity, you find comfort in complexity. And I guess one word that often gets related to that is chaos. And so accepting that, embracing that is part of that that process.
1: I think people or individuals who come from the more unstable regions of the world have learned to live with complexity in one way or another, and that somehow resonates in their
0: careers as well. And so... In a way, complexity, you've seen this. the face of planning is changing. It's going at a rate that we can't, in a way, follow along with conventional methods. One question from me to you is if you had a magic wand now and you could change one thing about where we are currently, how we do things currently, or anything related to that, what would that one thing be that you would like to change?
1: It would be education, without a doubt. I think our education system in architecture and in planning needs a fundamental shake. We are training students for a world that doesn't exist anymore. The skills that they need are not the traditional design skills at all, and I believe we need to bring education and profession much closer to each other. I have learned more in my professional experience within the same time frame than I learned in my universities. So, if I had a magic wand, I would design a completely different curriculum for architecture and planning schools. And I would open the room much more for alliances between disciplines in those educational spheres.
0: That's lovely to hear. And I guess it's yeah, it's a necessity moving forward into the future where we really need to be able to understand each other's language. As you said, when you were an Arab, there was a completely different kind of language and world that you had to adapt to. But that really gave you the tools and the skills to be able to then go on to lead these really fascinating projects thereafter. It is
1: exactly that, to be able to hear voices that are not from the tribes that you've been a part of, I think is where growth happens. And I've also had that experience when working with you because Mm -hmm. you come from a completely different departure point on the same topic. And when I hear you discuss the methodologies that you use or the analysis that you've had and how that complements the analysis that we've had, these aspects of your work I feel I'm back in university. So I'm learning constantly from the collaborations that we are having with you, with
0: other professionals that we work with that come from other disciplines. And I think that is how education should be. No, I definitely agree. And likewise, I am learning every day through these collaborations. So looking forward to see what the future holds. Absolutely, same here. And so what tips can you offer in terms of time management Do you? How do you balance your professional and personal life? What I have found...
1: Uh, successful for myself is a conflictual relationship with compartmentalization. So I compartmentalize my time, but I also give myself the liberty to not stick to it. now if okay. I don't feel like it. So I know the sequence of events that I have to commit to this week. I leave some gaps open. For example, Wednesdays are a gap for me. I try to reduce my workdays to four days a week because I know that it allows me to reflect and allows me to to make more informed and more holistic decisions during the other days of the week. If I'm working full-time five days a week, I start to narrow down my scope of opinions and and views and and thoughts. So, compartmentalizing those four days a week and then leaving these gaps a bit in the weekend, a bit in the fifth day. Of course, they intermingle, it's not an absolute thing. That's Mm -hmm. what I mean by compartmentalizing but not sticking to it. Is compartmentalization gives a structure and makes things efficient But leaving those gaps is necessary to let chaos flourish.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And to maintain the inspiration through the chaos. Exactly. And what other advice can you offer to young aspiring professionals who want to venture into this field? You mentioned the education aspect, but what else can you offer?
1: I think an advice can be to try and enter different spheres. The more spheres you can enter at an earlier stage in your career, the more voices you can hear from and learn from. And that gives a much better overview for you to orient yourself later on in your career. I think that would be my advice. No,
0: that's lovely advice. And so it's been a really fascinating journey through the different projects, through the different ways you've evolved your styles of thinking, the embracing of complexity and chaos. It's been very enjoyable and we'll definitely have to do this again. And I look forward to where our current collaboration is going to head, but Aria, thank you very much for joining and thank you to you listeners for tuning in to this really insightful conversation with Aria. Uh, Where can people reach you? Thank you, Peter, for your kind words. They can reach me on my LinkedIn. They can also reach me on
1: Instagram, my email address, my uh, official address of the company,
0: anywhere. And in Brussels. Definitely in Brussels. I've had an enjoyable trip so far and looking forward to visiting again. Happy to hear that. We'll put this and other links to projects and other references in the show notes that you can find. But, Ari, I always leave my guests the last words. So one last message for the listeners to take away from today.
1: I would like to dedicate this uh,
0: last word to the brothers and sisters I have in Iran who
1: are going through an extremely uh, difficult and challenging period and they have not stopped at any cost to ask for their human rights and freedom against all the various pressures and swimming against the waves as always with hope in the most hopeless of conditions. And that has given us, I would say, all Iranians a rejuvenated dream
0: for what could the future hold. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to you, listeners, for tuning in to this fascinating and engaging conversation with Ari Arabshahi. Shahi. As mentioned, you can find links to projects, books, and the geography of yogurt in our show notes over at peterambacht.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this show and are looking forward to more episodes, please do subscribe or follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you are listening from to be notified of the latest release as soon as it becomes available. I would be incredibly grateful for this as it helps me to reach a broader audience and, who knows, perhaps inspire new forms of education and an uptake of diverse cultural ideas and stories in our day to day gardening. If you would like to know more about me or my work in general, you can also check out my website at petermbach.com, my YouTube channel, Peter Marcus Bach, that's Marcus with a C, or follow me on Twitter at Peter M. Bach or Instagram at Peter M. Bach 87 If you have feedback or suggestions or just know someone who has an inspiring story to offer, Please feel free to reach out to me on social media. The podcast intro and outro song is called Bukolia by Bureaucratic. Stay tuned for our next episode and next guest to hear how they are tackling the grand challenges.